Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, Episode 6. Okay, before we get started, I do want to make just one note or announcement, which is that we have a new online store, uh, and the online store has both audio and video of previous classes, um, lectures like we have on this podcast, but longer series, some of which are 10, 15 hours, very... let's say lectures with a full curriculum, things like that. Uh, and videos where you can preview some of the videos beforehand and see if it's something you're interested in. Uh, the download process is easy and the videos also include a private YouTube link so that you, you know, even if, once you purchase the video, if you don't want to download it, you can um, go to uh, YouTube and log in and just watch it there so you can watch it from anywhere and all video purchases uh, include a copy of the audio so hopefully it makes things easy if you go to the website um, and have some recommendation or have listened to some of the things please leave reviews we have reviews there um, the ability to leave a review so the new store, uh, you can just go to our website, www.youngchicago.org, and there is a link on the left to the store, and just click on that and it'll take you right there. If you want to go directly, you can go to youngchicago.org slash store. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Today's lecture is Early Trauma and Dreams, Archetypal Defenses of the Personal Spirit, with Donald Kalshed, Ph.D. Donald Kalshed is a clinical psychologist and Jungian psychoanalyst in private practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He is senior training analyst with the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, where he teaches and supervises. His 1996 book, The Inner World of Trauma, Archetypal Defenses of the Personal Spirit, has found a wide readership in both psychoanalytic and Jungian circles, and has been translated into many languages. Dr. Kalshed teaches and lectures nationally and internationally, pursuing his interdisciplinary interest in early trauma and dissociation theory, and its mytho-poetic manifestations in the mythic and religious iconography of many cultures. Now, here's the lecture. Good evening. It's with uh, great pleasure that we are uh, bringing Dr. Donald Kalshed here. I'd like to introduce him as he's a clinical psychologist and union psychoanalyst with a private practice in Katuna, New York, the small hamlet north of New York City, where he serves as faculty and supervisor of both the C.G. Jung Institute of New York and the Interregional Society of Union Analysts. He's also dean of a union study specialty at the Westchester Institute for Training in Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, an NAAP member institute in Mount Kisco, New York, which trains candidates in existential object relations and union thought. His recent book, The Inner World of Traumas, Archetypal Defenses of the Personal Spirit, was published by Routledge. On a more personal note, and to further solidify his true union nature, Don is an avid amateur stonemason and has personally constructed the stone walls of a new home that he and his wife, Robin, have been building on seven acres of land in Ridgefield, Connecticut. So far, he tells me, the building has no tower. 
Thank you, Catherine. Um, it's especially gratifying to see so many people here tonight, um, especially when the Chicago Bulls are playing a championship game. I, when I saw that in USA Today, sitting next to my wife, Robin, coming out on the plane, um, I said, oh, God, there's a championship game on tonight. I said, nobody's going to come out for this lecture. And she paused a moment, <clears throat> and you know what she said? <laughs> she said, well, don't think that way. I mean, people might be interested in all kinds of bull tonight. <laughs> so that was our plane trip ride out here. What I'd like to do this evening in the course of, um, I'll try to keep it less than an hour, is to um, present you mostly with clinical material stories, really, uh, from the clinical situation, because I think they're most alive, and um, I'll try to bring the theory in to illustrate those, and we can maybe bring the theory in um, later in our questions and, and responses to the questions. Can you all hear me all right? Okay. Um, the territory we're going to be covering tonight is a little different than the usual familiar territory uh, which Jungian psychology deals with. For those of you who are therapists or who have some connection to the mental health field, um, we're going to be examining one end of the spectrum of, of psychological injury or disturbance, dysfunction, uh, characterized as, as uh, in some of the literature as the severe personality disorders, narcissistic um, personality disorders, schizoid personality disorders, dissociative identity disorders. By and large, Jung's theory, although it um, has as one of its primary dynamisms dissociation, deals with neuroses, um, which are the, relatively speaking, at least the, the milder forms of psychopathology or psychological disturbance. Um, and as you know, it was Jung's particular gift to, to demonstrate how parts of the ego are split off and become autonomous uh, complexes or personalities, subpersonalities in the unconscious. And uh, in a complex psychology, what has been split off can be reintegrated without difficulty. In the psychology that we're going to be describing tonight, what has been split off has never been home before, and its reintegration is a catastrophe. So it's important that we think, I think, about this just a little bit at the beginning because it, it frames the domain of our uh, discussion this evening. Um, instead of a conflict psychology, we have a psychology here of splitting and projective identification. Instead of a psychology um, of wholeness and integration, we have here a psychology of survival in parts. And splitting up into parts is an essential part of, an essential means by which the psyche preserves what I call the essential personal spirit, the imperishable personal spirit. <clears throat> 
Another way we might think about this is from personal shadow to archetypal shadow. Or we might characterize the difference as from a psychology in which unconscious material compensates the ego's uh, position to a psychology in which the, um, the dream material and the unconscious material actually attacks the ego's position. So we'll say more about that or we can talk more about that as we go. Now, when we talk about early trauma, which is the main focus of, of my remarks this evening and of my research, we're really describing experiences by and large in very early childhood before ego formation, before complete ego formation. Uh, and these experiences usually cannot be remembered. Um, sometimes they will reveal their presence as an amplification of an analogous affect situation in the transference or in the person's life. In other words, the person will suddenly have a huge charge of affect rushing through a current situation which they can't understand uh, why this current situation warrants such a powerful response. And so overwhelming affects may flood the personality, anger, anxiety, depression, Another way we have access to the early traumas is, of course, in the transference, um, because one part of the psychoanalytic frame is often very traumatic to people who have early injuries. That is to say, um, people with early trauma have a great deal of trouble with the benign split in the ego that's required to do analytic work. And by the benign split, I mean the capacity to sit in your analyst's office and understand that all the feelings that come up in you are real and that you have a real deep personal connection and intimate relationship with this person and that side by side with that there's a professional relationship in which he's going to end the hour very shortly and show you out the door and say next and those two realities of the analytic situation are frequently very difficult for people who have suffered early trauma. Winnicott uh, had the following observation about where we see uh, early trauma masquerading in the clinical situation. He said, often people who are terrified about going crazy, this is his paper, Fear of Breakdown, and I think we've all had that experience ourselves, per perhaps, and certainly those of us who are in the field have worked with people who have been terrified of psychotic breakdown. Winnicott said, usually what this represents is the fear of a breakdown that's already happened and can't be remembered. So that there's been some terrible rupture in the continuity of, of self-object relations in that very earliest primal relationship which can't be remembered and the way we remember it is to project it into the ambiguity of the future as a fear. So those are some of the ways in which we try to infer uh, early trauma in the clinical situation. There are many others uh, which we can talk about. In any case, early trauma is by definition an experience that causes the child unbearable psychic pain and by unbearable pain, we mean pain that is so severe that it cannot be processed by the psyche's symbolic and integrative capacities. 
And this is simply because of the ego's immaturity and because of the power of the affect and probably because the relational environment breaks down. The extent of trauma depends on many of these factors. The extent of the injury, the resources available in the environment, the age of the child, the maturity of the ego, uh, the reparative capacities of the psyche of the child, the reparative capacities of the environment. These are, are many intangibles, but when we're talking about unbearable experience, we're really talking about experience that cannot be symbolized. Winnicott's classic way of saying that is that uh, it cannot be organized within the orbit of the child's omnipotence. It can't be symbolized. Henry Crystal, who's done a great deal of work on, on early trauma, describes how the traumatized child is left flooded by volcanic eruptions of what he calls affect precursors or ur affects I think we would have justification for calling these archetypal affects um, Crystal's point is that that at this early age there's an evolution of affects in the personality from these volcanic eruptions of somatic affects or psychosomatic affects um, through a long, slow process of uh, differentiation and metabolization to the point of the child's capacity to have feelings and words for feelings. But um, Crystal's image of the child racked with paroxysms of volcanic eruptions of affect with nobody there to help soothe or metabolize those affects is, is a particularly uh, haunting um, image of what we're dealing with here and he says it leads to a paralyzed overwhelmed state psychic num numbness and dissociation Winnicott similarly refers to primitive agonies of a traumatic infancy the experience of which is unthinkable now when psychic pain is unthinkable an essential core of the person which I would like to call the personal spirit is threatened with extinction this must be avoided at all costs. And so what Winnicott called primitive defensive operations come into play to ensure that the overwhelming affects are dissociated, split off, encapsulated, evacuated into the body, perhaps later to appear as physical symptoms, or perhaps acted out in a blind repetition compulsion, but not held and not uh, in other words, the, the, the psyche of the child is not capable at this early age of rendering those experiences into language because there's nobody there to help with that experience. Now, both Winnicott and Kohut have pointed out that a certain level of unthinkable anxiety always originates um, at the symbiotic stage of child development where the child is totally dependent on the mother as a kind of external metabolizing organ of psychological experience. The mother's role is to help mediate experience, and this means especially to help metabolize anxiety. It's as though the infant breathes in psychological oxygen through the lungs supplied by the mother. What happens then when the mother is suddenly gone? Winnicott puts it this way. For the baby, quote, the feeling of the mother's existence lasts X minutes. 
If the mother is away more than X minutes, then the imago fades. And along with this, the baby's capacity to use the symbol of the union ceases. The baby is distressed, but this distress is soon mended because the mother returns in X plus Y minutes. In X plus Y minutes, the baby has not become altered. But in X plus Y plus Z minutes, the baby has become traumatized. In X plus Y plus Z minutes, the mother's return does not mend the baby's altered state. That's just an important statement. In X plus Y plus Z minutes, the mother's return does not mend the baby's altered state. Trauma implies that the baby has experienced a break in life's continuity so that primitive defenses now become organized to defend against a repetition of unthinkable anxiety or a return to the acute confusional state that belongs to disintegration of nascent ego structure. And then he says in a final note, we must assume that the vast majority of babies never experience the X plus Y plus Z quantity of deprivation. This means that the majority of children do not carry around with them for life the knowledge from experience of having been mad. Madness here simply means a breakup of whatever may exist at the time of a personal continuity of existence. After recovery from this X plus Y plus Z deprivation, a baby has to start again permanently deprived of the root which could provide continuity with the personal beginning. Now, translated into Jungian language, we might say that, that an unthinkable level of anxiety results when archetypal energies fail to be humanized and the child is left at the mercy of the terrible as well as the good uh, maternal and paternal archetypes. In other words, the split archetype. Eric Neumann, in his book on the child, has been especially eloquent about how the child suffering from such a breakdown in the primal relationship inherits a stress ego and is menaced from within by a negativized image of the self with a capital S. Now, just a little more theory and then we'll get to some cases. It may help us to understand this a little bit, at least the archetypal dimension, if we introduce another distinction that Jung made throughout his authorship. Jung alluded to two different levels of dissociation in most of his writings. And also, with these levels of dissociation, he alluded to two kinds of trauma, one that creates personal complexes and one that creates collective complexes. And here's what Jung said. He says, certain complexes arise on account of painful or distressing experiences in a person's life, experiences of an emotional nature which leave behind lasting psychic wounds. A bad experience of this sort often crushes valuable qualities in an individual. All these produce unconscious complexes of a personal nature. A great many autonomous complexes arise in this way, but there are others that come from quite a different source, the collective unconscious. At bottom, they are irrational contents of which the individual had never been conscious before. So far as I can judge, said Jung, these experiences occur when something so devastating happens to an individual that his whole attitude towards life breaks down. Then, 
He contrasts how we experience these two levels of the complex, and he says, if a complex from the personal unconscious is dissociated, the individual experiences a sense of loss, which for the primitive is equivalent to the loss of soul. Conversely, when such a complex is made conscious again, as for instance through psychotherapeutic treatment, there may be some shame and guilt, but the individual experiences an increase in, in wholeness and an increase in power. Many neuroses, Jung says, are cured in this way. But when, on the other hand, a complex of the collective unconscious becomes associated with the ego, it is felt as strange, uncanny, fascinating, even dangerous. Primitive peoples often experience this level of the complex as possession by a spirit. Now, this possessing spirit is what has interested me and what got my attention when I first started to work in this area. And I will tell you um, a brief story about how this came to me the first time that I noticed this. When I was working at a small clinic in Manhattan years ago, um, one of the first cases that I had uh, was a young woman who drove up to the first session in a motorcycle on a motorcycle uh, with, in a black leather jacket, um, stormed into the session and spent the first hour in a, in a uh, vitriolic tirade against her roommate who had just gotten pregnant and was getting married. And this had undone her for some reason that she couldn't understand. Well, as this case unfolded, it uh, turned out that this woman was an artist and um, had an incredibly tough exterior. Uh, she, her body was actually full of tattoos and her art um, was frequently imagery of dismembered bodies, a great deal of blood and gore. Um, in other words, tremendous evidence of severe dissociative uh, problems that she had and probably, I thought, um, some child abuse of some kind, sexual abuse. This all turned out to be true. She had had a, a repeated and recurrent uh, violation, incestuous violation by an uncle and also by her father. So the first, after about the first, I would say, uh, eight or nine months of the treatment, as some of this pain had started to open up and she had begun to trust the safety of the container with me, uh, a great deal of affect that had previously been split off started to emerge and in other words the little girl in her that had been so brutalized and massacred began to feel like she could come into the space and and play on one particular occasion just prior to my summer break um, nothing we had done no transference work up until this point it was all she could do to just barely hang hang in there as it was um, she acknowledged in a very tearful and moving session that she was having dependent feelings about me and affectionate feelings and that she was going to, didn't know what she was going to do in my absence and uh, this was a very genuine moment and a very moving session and she went home that night and wrote poetry about this and was quite moved as was I um, this was actually a couple of sessions before my summer break. She came back in one of the sessions that preceded the break with the following dream. 
she was lying in her childhood bed and she heard footsteps on the stairs outside her room and the footsteps got louder and louder and louder until they became deafening the door burst open and in burst a man who was not recognizable except that he had a completely white face like a ghost with black holes for eyes and he carried a huge axe he came over to her she was frozen in panic and raised the axe over her neck and came down and that was the end of the dream she woke screaming and in a panic now this was the night that she had been up writing poetry now of course when you hear a dream like that you wonder well what does this figure represent is this a breakthrough memory of the father is violating her perhaps coincident with the acknowledgement of loving feelings with me that's a possibility but what I started to wonder is if this wasn't an intrapsychic figure also and a figure that came on the scene precisely at this moment because of the connection that she was making between her body and her mind and that this figure seemed to have in his as his raison d'etre the severing of connections between her affect and her thoughts um, he carried this huge axe now I'll give you other cases which have further corroborated this idea but it began to interest me that conceivably for people who have suffered this extent of early injury that figures in the psyche are appointed to dismember experience in order to preserve the possibility of life in the future and I can't give you all the details of this case but as we got closer to her affect this figure kept appearing then as an incredible source of resistance to the change that she wanted and to the progress of her treatment gradually its countenance changed and uh, it became actually somewhat collaborative in the treatment towards the end so this was the beginning of my interest in in a defensive structure in the psyche and uh, it turns out that I'm not alone in this uh, in the book that I, I wrote I've tried to draw together many many of the theoretical contributions that have been made in the field about this figure for example um, Fairbairn calls him the internal saboteur Freud calls him the archaic and sadistic superego Guntrip calls him the anti-libidinal ego and you notice I'm saying him um, mostly it's a him in in most of the imagery although not always because we'll see we'll see the same imagery occurring in a feminine form in a moment but the basic idea is that um, that when the the child's life has had to be structured around pure survival that vulnerable needful feelings which were part of the early traumatizing situation cannot be re-experienced and that something in the psyche tries to prevent this from happening in other words we often see this figure coming up on the threshold of emergent um, love and affection for an actual object in the world 
or for the or we often see this figure emerging at those very points of neediness that the person needs to begin to trust an actual person out there and not just their self uh, their self-care system I call this the self-care system now let me give you another example a highly defended self-sufficient 35 year old woman who had been in therapy for a year was just now beginning to be able to open up with me some of the private hell of her childhood pain this had mostly to do with incredible experiences of um, of anxiety and a sense of terrible badness that came in relationship to her father uh, who was a perfectionist and a mathematician and this little girl could not ever understand math and as soon as this process was set up in which he shouted at her as she did her homework she became absolutely traumatized under these circumstances and it led to a whole series of, of, uh, of symptoms including eating problems but mostly a sense deep inside of herself that she was defective in some way that she carried some sort of bad gene and that she was just awfully bad now on the particular session where where a lot of this affect erupted she uh, uncharacteristically broke into sobbing tears and had actual trouble breathing getting her breath in the session and we would go into these feelings and she would sob and and run out of breath we'd come out of them into a more healing place we'd go back into them and this was the nature of the session here's the dream that followed that session I am captive with a group of young girls on a houseboat on some canal system it's an inky dark night the captain keeps trying to kill us one by one I'm trying to escape with a young girl with whom I'm chained at the ankles but she is weak and can't keep up with me until finally we are captured the young girl lies in shallow water I keep trying to pull her up with the chain so she can breathe but she keeps falling back into the water the captain is watching this with pleasure he comes over and with his boot on her throat pushes her under I'm overcome with grief and rage now you know in my early Jungian training I it used to be said occasionally when a dream like this came up well perhaps something in the psyche needs to die have you ever heard that um, this is not that kind of a case um, and I think that statement which is frequently used to be made occasionally in supervision seminars and so forth in my early training was made about those healthy neurotic cases where everything in the in the psyche was compensatory to a well-developed ego and so that murderous and violent figures in a dream might have in other words some sort of intention that would follow the intention of the wholeness of the personality and 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 therefore maybe the part that was being murdered or killed or split off or drowned needed to die 
But I think this is a good illustration of exactly the other kind of psychology we have here because the way I understand this material is that as this young, feminine, feeling part of her to which she was chained in the dream started to surface in the sessions, leaving her with trouble breathing, something else present in the session had its boot on the neck of this figure and was trying to put it out of its misery. This is the same woman who used to refer to her vulnerable feelings as the mewling, puking, weak little thing. Okay? So you hear the captain in that phrase. In other words, there's a there's an attitude within her of sort of counter-dependent aggression towards her own vulnerable needfulness that you hear in that kind of a moment and you, you could feel it in the sessions as she would go in and out of this, of this feeling. Now, <clears throat> my patient knew this dream was a direct response to, to the, the session we'd had the day before in which she had really risked something unbearably painful. What she really didn't know was how much this unknown captain in her hated her vulnerability and how deeply divided she was about the shameful aspects of her past. In our specimen dream, the innocent remainder of a previously whole self, the young girl chained to our dreamer, seems to represent or carry this this image of the imperishable personal spirit of the individual. And when I say imperishable personal spirit, what I mean is the mysterious essence of animation in the personality, what Winnicott called the secret true self, and what Jung, wishing to underscore its transpersonal origins, called the spirit archetype, or self with a capital S, a prefiguration of the incarnate personal ego which under ideal circumstances embodies a spark of that spirit and there, thereby becomes a sacralized ego, what Edinger calls a sacralized ego or the self's affiliate. That's Neumann's language. We can also see in my patient's struggle in that session the struggle for embodiment. It's represented in our dream by the patient's efforts to pull her young companion out of the water so she could breathe and by the corresponding drowning boot that this captain had on this, this part. In other words, the captain doesn't like the embodiment of affect uh, and will do almost anything to prevent it from happening. Um, in that connection, I'll, I'll give you an aside which has always intrigued me. And this is, this is how Lucifer came to... Uh, uh, set up shop in Hades. I, I don't know whether you know this story. It's part of the apocryphal um, tradition that precedes Christianity, but in, the, in some of the early traditions, um, God was in his heavens with his retinue of, of angels, and one of the, the most splendid angels was named Lucifer. Um, and he was, as the gospel said, God's greatest lover. 
and uh, greatest champion. And then there came a point where God filled the whole universe with his retinue of angels and he was lonely so he decided that he had to create humankind. And that he uh, was, as he was making these plans, Lucifer got wind of it and was absolutely appalled that the Lord uh, anticipated such a ghastly move into incarnation that um, he found this absolutely reprehensible that this, this splendid Godhead would, would stoop to taking on blood and flesh and mucus and human bodies and hair and all the rest of it. So he led a rebellion of 280-some thousand angels and they fell uh, into uh, oblivion and that was, at least in this apocryphal story, the origin of the great split in the primary uh, self or the primary Godhead. Now, isn't that interesting that the figure who sets up shop as the captor of souls, right, uh, the torturer of souls, the, um, the supervisor of all those innocent infants in limbo, uh, is, is the one who can't tolerate incarnation embodiment. So I found that interesting and interesting that, that in this particular dream image the captain represents exactly that kind of uh, raison d'etre. Now, um, the attacks on, on uh, the links in the, in the inner world that this figure perpetrates are part of the problem um, of the individual who has suffered early trauma. Um, the other thing that happens is that there's also seemingly a corresponding attack on transitional space between the individual and any creative activity or what Winnicott would call the, the potential space of creative involvement with the outer world. And this possibility dawned on me uh, after I've been working for several months with a depressed, withdrawn, a very imaginative, likable young woman whose early childhood showed all the signs of those of what Winnicott talked about as primitive agonies. Her mother had suffered a postpartum depression uh, upon her birth. The patient's earliest memories were of a constant bruise on her forehead, apparently banging her head on the floor in agitation. The patient's passionate attachment to her father was interrupted by the father's psychiatric hospitalization for a psychotic episode when she was two years old, leaving her with panic reactions and fears of ghosts. A year later, she was seriously injured in a car accident and spe spent six months in hospital undergoing many painful reconstructive skin graft operations. And the next year, at the age of four, her beloved grandfather died the year after that, her parents got divorced. So somewhere during this period, between one and five, this imaginative little girl, who was later my patient, simply gave up hope for a life lived in this world. She withdrew into herself, never to come out for many years. And as we explored this early history of trauma, the patient remembered two repetitive events that occurred when she was five years old. First, in kindergarten art class, she repeatedly, repeatedly drew a large black circle in the center of her paper. 
All the other children were drawing suns with happy smiley faces and rays coming out of them. She repeatedly drew this black spot. When asked what it was, each time she responded, a tunnel. No one knew what this meant, but she knew her teachers were concerned about it, and all her little friends seemed to be puzzled by it too. That was the first memory that came up from this early period. Secondly, there was a repetitive nightmare that began, as far as she can remember, around kindergarten age, around the same time, five years old, which now came back to her as we explored this history, and here's the repetitive dream. The scene is kindergarten. A female teacher, not my kindergarten teacher, but somebody strange, a strange person, is taking pictures of all my animal friends who are sitting around in a circle, talking and playing. It's such a wonderful scene, all mine, like a garden. But suddenly, something is terribly wrong. As the teacher snaps the pictures, each animal turns into a stuffed replica of its former self. I'm horrified. I rush helplessly from one animal to the next, screaming and crying, trying to stop this. But the teacher keeps snapping until all the animals are dead. Now, what quickly became clear to me and my very astute patient was that in this image of the deanimation of her childhood reality by a teacher, we had a dramatic picture of what I call her self-care system in operation. The diabolical yet caretaking teacher accomplishes a petrification or freezing of animated transitional reality and hence one might surmise a preservation of childhood animation at a time when the patient's animated connection to life was simply too painful to continue. Instead, at this time, her imaginative life became dissociated, disconnected from outer reality, and buried in a dark tunnel within herself. There it remained until a later time of thawing, which occurred in her later life, and partly in her psychotherapy when she could start to hope and dream again within the transference. Now later in her therapy, as she began to separate from this autistic, self-soothing um, world in the tunnel, great rage against reality erupted from, from this young woman, and the teacher appeared frequently as a terrifying witch in her dreams, who furiously fought to retain control over the younger, more vulnerable part of the patient's inner life. One such dream, which recapitulated, I think, her whole life up until this point of the dream, was as follows. Remember the tunnel as you hear this. I was a prince. There was a witchy woman. Notice the gender switch. I was a prince. There was a witchy woman, an enchantress, extremely powerful and very seductive. The scene is like the Wizard of Oz. There are monkey-like demons. I was swinging all over, killing these creatures in a fierce battle. I won, but I realized that a little piece of this old witch had gotten inside me. I was in the Arctic with my entourage. I knew that this germ of her was growing in me and would become more powerful. I had them chain me up. 
Then they were saying that they'd have to kill me because I was getting dangerous. I asked to kill myself. I saw a hole in the glacial wall. I knew if I went through it, death lay on the other side. We had a moving, touching goodbye. I crawled through the hole. I tumbled down and down and down until I came to rest somewhere. As I came to, I realized I was being tended by Tibetan monks. They were taking me in as their protege. They were full of knowledge, and I was their young apprentice. This seemed to have gone on for a very long time. But after a while, I got bored, and I wanted to escape. Eventually, I made my way back out of the hole. I came out in an arctic landscape. It was all mountainous. I saw a shepherd with an arctic goat. I was overcome with gladness at seeing a human being there. Then there was a humming in my bones, deep in my body. The sun started to rise, and its first rays warmed me. The snow melted, rivulets of water began to trickle down the ice, and I was filled with life. Now, do you see what's happened here? I mean, it, it feels to me like this dream really recapitulates what happened at the time of that retreat into the inner sanctum of her inner world, and it also adds something that we as Jungians really understand, namely that the mortified, fractured ego that falls through the earthquake fault of trauma doesn't just fall into a world that it makes up, like a blissful world. That was Freud's idea, that the ego made up what it found in primary narcissism. What happens is that the ego falls into a world of archetypal reality, and it is truly a caretaking world. Um, and in that world, this young woman had a very alive and active intellectual life. It was excessively privatized. And until she came into her therapy and we could talk about some of her, her the books she had, she had read and the, and the religious experiences that she had had and the archetypal imagination that she had been cultivating, she was all alone in that space. So, and yet, you know, it's like um, those hydroponia, you know, that grow plants without soil. That's what the inner sanctum of the archetypal psyche is like. You can, you can survive on the ambrosia of the gods for a certain amount of time, but then, as happened in her dream, things got pretty bad in there, and she really needed to get outside again, and she had to find her way back out of this frozen place. And uh, there was this shepherd with an arctic goat. Now, she was an astrologer, and she knew I was a Capricorn, so she thought this was me. Uh, I didn't have an investment in that interpretation, but um, it wasn't bad. I thought, well, <laughs> at least there's two of us now and a goat, and uh, uh, the landscape was starting to thaw. Now, as a final case illustration to, to uh, bring this to a close, I'd, I'd like to give you a, uh, a vignette which which shows the slow transformation of this archaic defense as it is projected in the transference. Um, this patient was a depressed woman whose tyrannical inner voices constantly belittled and attacked her for even the smallest steps in the direction of self-assertion. Um, you're an asshole. You're sick. You're stupid. 
you're retarded, you should kill yourself, and so forth. Not infrequently, she would attribute such feelings to me or to others she idealized, but each time the voice occurred in, in the transference, we were able to find a fragment of anxiety associated with some hope or vulnerability that she was beginning to risk and that her voices were dead set against this hope. We could witness this and talk about it. She began to understand how the defense worked and began to develop an observing ego that could watch this process and not be completely enthralled to the voices. The following dream occurred towards the end of the second year of her analysis before my extended summer vacation. Here's the dream. I come upon a man wrestling with a woman. I don't seem to be frightened for the woman because the scene has an almost ritual quality. The man cuts off the woman's left forefinger at the knuckle. Then he goes after the right forefinger. By this time, I'm the woman and can feel the man's knife cutting through my finger without pain and probing for the ligament that connects the first two digits, which he's trying to sever from the rest of the finger and hand. He's unsuccessful because the last image of the dream is of the otherwise severed finger hanging by this ligament, and I have the thought, this can be reattached. Now, my patient had no association to the man or woman. To the four fingers, she associated making a point. And she talked about how she was becoming, in fact, increasingly confident about speaking her mind and expressing her point of view. And then, quite spontaneously, she said, Yes, and just as I get more confident about my feelings and really want to work on them, you go away. After a moment of silence, I replied, and cut you off. She laughed and said, yes, and for the second time, you took a long time off last summer, too. Now, in this brief exchange, she and I had interpreted her dream uh, with its by now very familiar dismembering defense. Our spontaneous repartee proved to be a very important communication for her because my patient was not accustomed to letting on that our work and the transference relationship which sustained it was all that important to her on a feeling level. Her spontaneous remark had given herself away and opened up the meaning of the dream to both of us, really. And then she acknowledged how much the, the work had meant and how much it hurt to lose the connection. And we discussed ways in which she could keep this connection alive during the upcoming break. So here we have again this dyadic self-care system represented in the dream as a strange man cutting off parts of her body, attacking the ligaments, the links, which she associates with self-expression. The man with the knife is not yet a transference figure, but rather an inner stranger, dark side of the self as a defense, with whom she wrestles, sustaining a wound, as did Jacob in his wrestling with the dark angel at the river Jabbok. This angel's dark intention would seem to be the dismemberment of her expressed feeling for me in the transference, although he now allows some connection. In my response to her pointed remark, I stepped into the shoes of this figure, as it were, 
took on the projection, and then she had a brief experience of wrestling with me in the transference. In this way, the archetypal defense already moderated to the point where she could risk a spontaneous gesture was further personalized. The dismembering demon could now be played with as he was projected onto me and then taken back. Vulnerable feelings could be admitted. Some of the anger directed back into the inner world at her neediness could now be released and find form in her negative feeling expression outwardly about the upcoming abandonment. I think this example illustrates how the establishment of a playful space in the transference reestablishes the transitional space foreclosed in the patient's early life, leading to her archetypal self-care system and its splitting defenses. In this field, what Winnicott calls personalization and indwelling of the personal spirit can again occur, and the trauma defense with its archetypal affect is gradually humanized and affect tolerance is increased. The dark stranger with the knife, whose job it is, it has always been to cut her off from vulnerable feelings of neediness and dependency, no longer needs to sever all the links, but leaves a ligament that can be reattached. One is reminded of the Latin verb ligare, meaning to yoke or bind, which appears after the prefix re in the Latin religio, suggesting a connection or reconnection here to the divine wholeness. Okay, let's stop there and thank you very much for your attention and we'll have a break and then come back for some questions. Thank you. Okay, let's um, open the uh, open the floor for any questions. Uh, the only uh, proviso is that because the questions and answers will be taped, you have to go to the microphone at the middle of the floor. First, I, I just want to thank you for your book. It was uh, I read it the last six months, the last year, and it was very helpful hmm. both for my work with folks my inner work and trying to think theoretically about psychoanalytic theory and Jungian theory so thank you very much I have a question I'm not sure exactly how to say it it has to do with your discussion about archetypal the archetypes and archetypal theory and what I one thing I like about your book is how it helps bring Jungian theory in some ways in line with so much that's being done in psychoanalytic theory in the second part of the 20th century and the quote discoveries that are being made but so could you just comment a bit more on well from the other side it's a different way of talking about the archetypes than a lot of Jungians tend to do because you bring in affect, I mean, you bring in affect and image, but it's it's got a different tone or a different flavor than a lot of Jungian theory. So I guess my question would be, could you talk a bit more about how archetypal th archetypes are important to you know analytic theory and how your discussion of them 
is it maybe a little different nuance on a lot of Jungian theory? Okay, I'll try. Okay. <laughs> um, the um, the thing that interested me is as I had these cases repeating um, what began to look like a structure to me, namely um, this tyrannical, abusive, uh, controlling captain on the one hand and a, a young, innocent, vulnerable uh, part of the patient on the other. They seem to always come up together. So I began to get interested in this tandem, what Jim Hillman calls a tandem, um, of, you know, it's really the victim-perpetrator tandem within the psyche. And when you see something out repeating uh, across patients and then you go to the literature and you find people talking about this, uh, same structure, no matter what the theory is, you have good reason to think that it's archetypal. That is to say, it's archaic and typical. Okay? Um, now, what does that tell us? It simply tells us that probably this is a universal structure in the human mind and psyche. And to me, what has become interesting is the miraculous... Uh, capacities that the psyche seems to have for defending um, a core of the person against unbearable annihilation by dismembering experience <laughs> so that and this I think is where where maybe I'm taking a step beyond what most uh, most theorists and colleagues of mine in the Jungian world have talked about. I think Jung was so concerned to 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 um, project a psychology that was generative and creative and holing and non-pathologizing. Uh, you know, in his response in his reaction to Freud, that he tended not to then deal with the most severe character disorders and problems where primitive levels of defense come in. You see, when Freud uh, elaborated his psychology, there was a great deal of discussion about defense, but the defenses in the Freudian uh, tradition are mostly ego defenses. We don't get to what Winnicott calls primitive defenses until, really, uh, we, we start into that with Forenzi and Klein and then the middle school of the British object relations. Now, there's another thread to my thought, and that is an article that, uh, if you haven't read it, you must read this. It's, it's, um, it's a terrible analysis. It's a very interesting document, and that is uh, the review that Donald Winnicott did of Jung's Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. And it came out, and it's in uh, Winnicott's um, collected papers. It's in the, the big uh, psychoanalytic explorations. But in that paper, Winnicott looks at Jung's early life and sees severe trauma and says Jung really had a very early split which required primitive defenses 
And um, it's, I mean, I, I, won't, I won't tell you what the whole article says, but Winnicott completely misses Jung, I think, in one, in one respect, while identifying something of Jung's early trauma and, and, uh, and the defenses that came to rescue him. But then Winnicott at one point says in this, in this article, naturally, of course, these defenses that are primitive that came to rescue Jung have certain common denominators in anthropological lore. But that's not interesting. <laughs> now, that was the first time I'd ever heard anybody say there might be archetypal dimensions to the defenses themselves. And it was Winnicott that gave me that little tickler. And it was in the article about Jung. So what I've been trying to, what I try to do in my book is to, is to start developing the idea that, that, uh, that the psyche has miraculous defensive capacities and that we can see archetypal dimensions in these defenses and that we can start thinking about that. See, the, the really miraculous thing is that at certain points in the treatment, the dreams start to represent, personify the, the defenses as images. You get the captain with his boot on the neck, or you get the axe man with the axe. So, see, these are anti-symbolic acts by this violent figure in the psyche, and yet the psyche is capable of symbolizing them. That's a miracle. So it tells us that something is bigger than that dissociative energy in the psyche. Whatever that bigger something is, is... is the capacity to have the dream, the capacity to symbolize it. Um, so I started to think to myself, well, you know, there's an awful lot of, when you really think about it, all life forms have required uh, a huge amount of energy given over to defense. Camouflage um, in the natural world, I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And, you know, all the mythologies in which there's the shape-shifting um, I play a little bit with the immunological analogy in my book um, where my idea is that this internal persecutor functions a little bit like the autoimmune system in the body uh, in, in the case of AIDS or any of the autoimmune diseases in that he thinks that this new opportunity for growth and love with the world is going to be another trauma and he attacks the, the very thing that would help the person grow mistaking it for a pathogen I mean it's the same thing the, auto, the, the immune system does in, in AIDS for example the viruses are capable of of um, of mimicking actual body tissues, the trickster element in in immune disease is amazing, and it is in the psyche too, I think. So these are all just uh, ruminations and, and random thoughts, but they at least address in the general area of your question. Okay. How do you talk with psychoanalytic folks about how the archetypes are important? So if someone says, well, of course these are primitive defenses and 
there's intense emotional energy, but this is only because of the vulnerability of the child that was traumatized. How do you... Well, you know, there are many psychoanalysts outside the Jungian field who are beginning to talk this language themselves. If you read Christopher Bolas's Shadow of the Object, he has a positively mystical chapter on how dreams are um, made. He talks about the other with a capital O who stages us in our own nighttime dramas um, so that we can see ourselves objectively. I mean, he might as well use the word self, but he doesn't. Um, and quite a number of others really are beginning to get interested in, well, Kohat, for example. Kohat's image for what I'm calling this, this basic structure is the basic program laid down in the self, the blueprint uh, in the self. So he comes very close to Jung's ideas. And this is one of the exciting things to me, that Jung was so ahead of his time in this respect that, that a lot of the contemporary theorists are really catching up. You may be interested that um, coming out next fall at some point is an issue of psychoanalytic dialogues uh, in which eight of us as Jungian analysts were asked to respond to some questions about our work and then each of us was asked to analyze in a brief uh, vignette uh, a case that was uh, described by one of the psychoanalysts. So it's, the dialogue is starting, and I think it will get richer. So. I have a composite question. Let me see if I can uh, trim it down. Human trauma needs human or ego defenses. When trauma is uh, catastrophic or supra or subhuman, then I presume you need divine or archetypal defenses. Right. So that's your basic premise. That's right. Now the question is, if the trauma is pre-ego complex, if there is such a thing as a point in time when ego complex is constellated. I understand Jung never defined a point in time when that happens. First half of life, perhaps the rest of your life, it continues to evolve. But be it as it may, there is some hypothetical point when there is a... Uh, palpable ego complex. Mm -hmm. So if the trauma were to, uh, to, uh, to intervene to occur prior to ego complex being quite palpable, then I presume you'll have archetypal defenses right. or collective complexes. Mm -hmm. And by the same assumption, when there is uh, uh, post-ego complex, you'll have personal complexes or personal defenses. That's right. Is, is that your premise? Well, yes, although I, I suspect we can't probably be quite so clear on when that demarcation is. And, but yes, uh, I like to think of the personal complexes a little bit like the parable of the prodigal son. Um, if the material has been home in the ego at one point, even if it's exiled, it can be returned and become part of the wholeness. If it's never been home, if it's never been a part of ego experience, then its return or its integration is experienced as a terrifying event. And that's where human mediation is so critical. Uh, because all the defenses now are against its returning. 
better. The, the related question I had is, uh, let's assume the worst case scenario, there is an individual who is uh, pre-verbal, uh, there is a catastrophic trauma, archetypal defenses have been activated, and later in life you meet this client individual. Now you said, in, you um, indicated that these uh, archetypal complexes could have a dark side, yes. uh, and of course they always do, but it called also have a light side. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think that may at times manifest as manic defenses or mm -hmm. narcissistic defenses, mm -hmm. but they can also be extremely highly adaptive in lives of people. Um, you know, and, and I wonder if you could comment on that part. Otherwise, we are left with an impression that trauma always leads to pathology. And it has, of course, been my privilege to see people who are hurting but have gone beyond their own condition Yes. To achieve greatness. Practically. Well, thank you for, for asking that because it'll give me a chance to talk about the positive side, the miraculous side of these life-saving defenses. Um, the best example of that, I talk about this figure as a protector persecutor. So he's very ambivalent. Um, the protective side of that figure, the positive side of that figure is, is really the guardian angel. Um, and uh, in, in my book I give this example but I'll tell you because some of you haven't read it this example I heard from Edward Edinger in a series of tapes that he's done um, that are available through the, the um, Los Angeles Jung Institute on, on the Old Testament um, I think it's in that series anyway this story came to him through Esther Harding and it was told to her by a friend in England. This friend had a little girl who uh, came to her one day, and the mother instructed her to take a message to the father who was in his den, uh, busily preparing something for the following day's work. And the, and the little girl took the message and went into the, to the, uh, tried to deliver it. She came back to the mother shortly thereafter in tears. And the mother asked her what was wrong, and the little girl said, uh, the angel won't let me go in the room. And the mother said, oh, now, come on. You know, this is, you can go in the room, just, you know, and she, she tried to humor the, the little girl and said, you just tell the angel to let you in, and so on. The little girl went back, same result, tears again. At this point, the mother had become sort of irritated at the imaginal excesses of the of her daughter and took her by the hand and marched into the room and there was her husband dead in his chair. Now, what was the angel? Well, we could say defense, but this is, this is a, a life-saving, miraculous, beautiful image of how the psyche comes to the rescue, right, um, of the experience that that little girl would have had would have been unbearable. So the angel had something to do with preventing an unbearable moment from occurring until it could bring in the mother, and as it were, the mother then could help in whatever metabolizing that experience um, but there are also many other examples of how 
archetypal images and factors work in the unconscious to save the person who who has been so traumatized that they cannot adapt and um, in the book I talk about one example of Kay and her dolphins I won't go into all of that but this was a woman who literally when when she would be overcome um, would actually uh, go into a kind of altered state in which dolphin figures would swim into her environment and it was it was the most extraordinary thing to witness this um, there are many many examples of that kind you're absolutely right it's uh, there's a good book on this called by Greg Mogensen called God is a Trauma um, I, I think Greg himself might be a little chagrin that I recommend that book um, because he wrote it at a time when he was very much under the influence of, of Freudian understanding but but the point that he makes that's so telling is that there are certain traumas in life and particularly those as you say that occur before ego consolidation where the only thera therapeutic uh, help is the religious symbol systems of the world is 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 the divine uh, because uh, that's the level at which the trauma occurs and that's the level at which the medicine has to be delivered now there's a problem with that there's a negative to that positive which is that you have to keep out the dark thoughts the negative feelings and all of the um, those aspects of the world that conflict with an image of the divine in, that you need to protect uh, so it tends to make for a rather rigid system sometimes but um, yeah the, this whole area interests me uh, mostly because of the the miraculous dimension of life-saving capacities of the psyche um, with the irony you know that that the self capital s when it comes to the rescue of an individual like this who who who's had you know ego dismembering trauma at very early age has to concern itself more with survival than with individuation and survival often means chopping the person up into parts so that this person can exist in the world with albeit with a functioning personality uh, preserving the core the seed of the true of the, of the true nature of this person for possible future growth in Hindu uh, psychology it is said that when you have a trauma that you must overcome personally uh, then you would be individuating but when you have an archetypal defense activated and there are some examples which I won't belabor right now then you are meant to help the the humanity individuate then your task is beyond the personal realm and it becomes a dharmic task to help with the individuation 
uh, of of the of the community. Uh, so that's the thought, and that's the. That's a beautiful yeah. thought. I, I I would like to uh, thank you for that. I'd I'd like to think about that and explore what the implications are because uh, you know a lot of of those of us who have been most deeply wounded are most effective in helping. Um, at least helping up to a certain point or helping people at a particular stage. It's um, one of the things that I've been intrigued with is that some of the some of the patients that I see who who are who have such self attack and and violence in their inner world and when they turn that outward towards persons it can be lacerating and devastating sadistic but they have a capacity of empathy for innocent creatures particularly animals um, that is absolutely unbelievable and um, it's been very moving to me to have that that awareness um, one such person arrived at my office once in New York this is not the usual kind of thing that we get in an analytic session um, she walked in and she was terribly distraught because a pigeon sitting outside on my stoop had an injured wing and at first I didn't take her seriously about how important this was to her but she literally could not enter the session because of this pigeon so uh, after trying desperately to analyze this um, <laughs> very unsuccessfully uh, we left the session I got a box and we went down and put the pigeon in the box and um, she took it off to the veterinarian and this moment meant a great deal to her um, and I had to get it through my thick head that not everything is ready to be analyzed as a part of the self because <laughs> if I had continued my my efforts to do that uh, you know she she was fully prepared to see me as one of the the perpetrators of violence uh, on the animal kingdom because um, I wasn't sympathetic yes you have made some mention tonight and also in your book of I think how you phrased it, it was the evacuation of that overwhelming affect to the soma mm -hmm. um, or the psychoid, I believe. Psychoid, right. Um, the psychoid process. But um, what I'm curious about is particularly nowadays when there are so many people who are searching for unresolvable somatic problems um, that are not aware of a so-called pre-verbal trauma but end up on a healer's table, a, a body worker's table, um, and so many people in that community are facing this type of issue daily where the concept of handling the transference counter-transference relationship is much more negligible um, I wonder if you could speak more to that what you observed in your own practice um, whether or not you've worked 
in conjunction with people who do access sensory experience, which is where that early trauma is yeah. registered. Yeah, a lot of the people that I work with uh, with this material uh, refer to body workers or they themselves have sought help with um, body work of various kinds. Um, that can range the full gamut from Alexander Technique, Feldenkrais, to uh, witness movement, to uh, network chiropractic, to Barbara Brennan's uh, healing, core energetics, uh, Rubenfeld synergy work, and so forth. And many of the people that I work with find enormous help um, in ways that they don't understand the kind of releasing that they get when they're in a safe space and able to work with somebody who attends the body. Um, this is an area that I don't know a great deal about. It's um, What is miraculous, though, is that we do have the impression nowadays that, that when in this pre-egoic state, when trauma occurs, there's nothing... To, there, if the registering organ uh, is not the ego or its representative dimensions in the unconscious, then the body will register the, um, the affect and the pain and hold it. Um, I, was, I was struck by um, a story that a young um, masseuse told me um, in a Milwaukee health club where I was getting a massage and I was interviewing this person who was working on my back while she worked on it and and <laughs> gives you a sense of how, how easily I get into my own body. Anyway, <laughs> she told me an interesting story. She said she was working on an executive's um, shoulder, sort of like where she was working on mine, and um, there was a huge knot and, and a tremendous amount of tension that he apparently held there. And they worked for a, a period of time, and he gradually sort of trusted her and then he called her up one night and said that um, in tears completely broken open after a session with her and accused her of having done some terrible damage and ruined his life and uh, God knows what and she had the presence of mind of saying for him to get back into the office immediately and they continued to work and he and she, because she was psychologically sensitive, said, now I want you to tell me anything in your tears, anything that comes to you, any images, any, any scraps of memory, anything. And as they worked, he suddenly saw himself standing in front of the open grave of his father, who died when he was two. And now this was a moment when something heretofore held entirely in the, in the soma suddenly got an image and so we have an affect image so suddenly the archetype starts to work you see affect and image are not split at that moment they come together and there was a huge release of feeling and he got himself into therapy and um, that was all I heard of the story but it was a wonderful example, I thought, of how staying with the body, if you can get the person to do it, can sometimes lead to an image that then then brings more affect and more integration, more capacity.
to hold more affect. But absolutely, I mean, body work is a terribly important thing here. Um, and I don't know, you know, I worked with one man, for example, who as we worked through his trauma, his back was always going out. He couldn't hold alignment. And as he began to be able to hold more affect and grieve his lost childhood, really, his back kept holding alignment better and his chiropractor actually asked to be remembered to me <laughs> because his back wasn't going out all the time. And he said I was, you know, destroying his practice. That he <laughs> At least that's what the patient told me. So, yeah, these things actually do relate to each other. I think the whole area of chronic pain is a sort of area of this that we have yet to really fathom and understand. And I don't really know that that literature very well. There's so much, you know, of these non-specific psychosomatic difficulties which are undiagnosable in any sort of allopathic way and which clearly have some connection to the psyche. We finished? Thank you very much for your help and attention. Commentary today is by August Swick, PsyD. Dr. Swick is a clinical psychologist, hypnotherapist, and senior diplomate Jungian analyst in private practice in the Chicago area. This is Dr. August Swick. I'm an analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Just listened to a lecture by Donald Kelched, uh, given at the Institute in 1998. This is two years after the publication of his book, The Inner World of Trauma, Archetypal Defenses of the Personal Spirit, in 1996. This was to become one of the best-selling Jungian clinical works, um, maybe second only to Pinkola Estes's Women Who Run With the Wolves. The popularity of this book and the topic seems to have hit a nerve in the collective and with therapists and with people, the idea of trauma. Um, Dan's genius really was to add a kind of archetypal underpinning to the dynamics people had been talking about before, where we knew there was a kind of persecutory and victim set up in the psyche. Uh, what Don adds is an archetypal root to that, which he calls the persecutor protector, so that you have this kind of deep figure uh, often appearing in dreams that is something almost more maniacal than any human person can be. Uh, in this lecture we see some grand images of this figure. The first dream that he discusses a sort of ghost with an axe which severs the dreamer's head from the body. Um, the we could see that this was like a disconnecting of the ability to kind of think and to feel and have the sensations of the trauma at the same time. 
in another image, we see a captain who puts his boot uh, onto a chained child to the dreamer. Um, the patient actually in waking life suffers from breathing difficulties. So we see the connection of the image um, with the symptoms that the person is having. In another image, we have a sort of critical teacher who's taking a picture of the dreamer as a child with their um, totem animal friends. And with each picture, the animals become sort of deanimated, become dead to the person. Um, the final image, which Don presents really as a the beginning of a healing image, there's another dismembering image of a hand and four fingers being cut, but that they're hanging by a ligament, which then Don describes as sort of something linking is still remaining. Don presents us with a conundrum here. Um, he says deep trauma really is unable to be symbolized because of its uh, depth, sometimes because it's so early in a person's life. Uh, and yet these dreams seem to be able to symbolize uh, what usually is not able to be symbolized. If there's a critical aspect in terms of some of Don's work is that maybe all of this um, persecution is kind of relegated to this deep archetypal figure and some of it that may occur in the relationship with the patient, the transference situation, can sometimes be ignored that perhaps the therapist is also doing something um, that is persecutory to the patient. Uh, it's not unusual in therapy to sort of re-traumatize the person by going back and beginning to talk about the trauma. So he tends to not explore this really at any depth, but really what he has added to the literature in being able to be aware of these figures and to help the person kind of see. And actually, it allows then a relationship to this persecutory figure because the positive side of it, the protector side of the persecutor, is actually there to protect the person from further trauma, um, though it keeps the person sort of locked into an inner hell. Um, Don also has a new book uh, out, in terms of soul and trauma, where he has continued this work and really talks more about in depth. He really does focus on not so much of what he's calling the archetypal side of the psyche, but the mythopoetic of how these things can be imaged. And he really does emphasize much more the balance between a defensive side and a progressive side of really allowing a person to begin to be able to get out of the trauma. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. The content of today's lecture is copyright Donald Kalshed. For more lectures by Donald and other Jungian analysts, visit our website www.jungchicago.org. Our episode music is by Michael Chapman. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website www.jungchicago.org.